This podcast contains potentially adult language, adult themes, definitely drinking, and possibly sexual context. Listener discretion is advised. track my producer does so it makes it sound like there's so many people surrounding me okay so i'm your host in front of a live studio audience yes actually ironically i'm gonna just do this i I am sort of in front of a live studio audience the rest of our writing group here so on our writers retreat live studio audience and so we can have cheering cheering drinking with all those there we go yeah why they didn't do that from the get please clap okay I'm your host, Erica Lance. With me today is J.M. Paquette. And I get to fangirl. I'm going to explain that in a little bit. But with us today is Dan Wells. Okay. So, um, oh, let's talk about what we're drinking while on the podcast. I decided, since it's actually kind of fairly early for us, Breakfast Stout by Founders. It is a double chocolate coffee oatmeal stout. There's a lot of things happening right there. That's a lot of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Jen, lack of judgment. Talk about your bubbly water. I'm drinking. I'm drinking lime bubbly, because I don't drink. <laughs> rebel, you, you rebel. Dan, what are you drinking? I am uh, even more boring than that. I am drinking water out of this collectible King's English Bookshop tumbler. Ooh, that I had for so long. The King's English logo is completely worn off of it, so it just looks like a disposable plastic thing from a McDonald's or something. It has a straw. You're one up on Jen, who's just out of a can. There we go. So for anybody in the far reaches of the world that doesn't know you, will you talk a little bit about what you write? Yeah. Um, I'm Dan Wells, as mentioned. I write a little bit of everything. I uh, am primarily known as a horror author because of the book, I Am Not a Serial Killer. Uh, that was my first novel and 12 years later, still my most successful by far. It's had a movie adaptation. Um, It outsells everything else. Uh, But I have also written a lot of science fiction. Um, I have written fantasy. I have written for television. I have written for stage. Uh, I have recently been doing a ton of game writing for some RPG companies. So I kind of have my fingers in as many pies as I can find. That is awesome. So we did see when doing some, you know, cyber stalking, I'm going to call it research, but it was cyber stalking. <laughs> um, no judgment. Uh, that you actually, because we're going to sign up for one of your online role-playing games. We didn't know oh, you did that. Oh, sweet. And, yes. You know, we're, we're, we're Forgotten Realms D&Ders. We, well, actually, pretty much every game what? you listed we played. My most obscure game I played was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the role-playing game. You know what? That's the game that got me into the hobby way back in <laughs> 1988 or whatever it was. See, I said he probably remembers Torg. Oh, yeah. Torg. I never played Torg, but I remember Torg. Yeah. The worst role-playing game that I have to say was GURPS. I felt like GURPS, which is a, what is it, general, somebody, blah, blah, blah. Anyway. Generic universal role-playing system. Thank you. I felt like it took 40 years to actually have a combat in GURF, so. You know, that's the fault of many, many role-playing games. Uh, lately, I've been really getting into the super um, minimalist ones. 
mm -hmm. uh, that are primarily narrative. But uh, yes, that is one of my other, actually right now, one of my primary income streams is I'm a professional GM. I can't, I run seven different campaigns right now. Five D&D, wow. &D, no, it's eight now because we just started a Star Trek game, so. Well, soon you'll have nine because we've all, we're like, we're signing up. So anyway. Awesome, <laughs> I look forward to it. Wonderful. Um, so the fangirl I'm gonna admit is this, I met you at Dragon Con. Okay. You were at Dragon Con and I saw I'm not a serial killer and I was like, I need to have this book. I bought two books from you. So I have two signed copies of your books and I've read all of them and I saw the movie with Christopher Lloyd and everything like that. So I love those books. I think oh, they're- Thank brilliant. you very much. Yes. So I, it was funny cause I was asked by the, this little crew here of who would I want to talk to on the show? And I was like, Dan Wells. And then Alexi's like, I can get you Dan Wells. And I'm just like, ah! <laughs> Yes. That wasn't no. me typing. That was me having like a momentary heart attack. And then well, I was like, breathe and type slowly. <laughs> was that the year at Dragon Con when we showed the movie? I don't think so. Okay. I don't think so. Unless I missed that. 17 Dragon Con, we were able to show the movie, which was okay, really- Okay, I missed. Okay, great. That's great. Disappointing. My entire life is over from that Dragon Con. <laughs> I've ruined everything. Really? That's closing this. Not doing it anymore. No. Um, yeah. So I, I love that because uh, um, one of the things I write horror also, and I, I write serial killers. So I thought, anyway, I love the way you did that and tied in the supernatural and everything like that. Oh, thank you. So, yeah. Fangirl at this moment. So um, we read your biography, again, cyberstalking, but what, um, I actually love your story, one of the first things you wrote. So will you share that with the audience here? Oh, yeah, the, the Choose Your Own Adventure? Yes. Yeah. So I actually announced to my parents in second grade that I was going to be an author. And, you know, they smiled and nodded and were like, okay, that's great. What are you going to do until that is supporting you? And I'm like, nothing, I will just write. And I wrote a choose your own adventure book because those were so hot when I was in second grade. Uh, and this one was about a maze. And I thought I was so clever because, you know, I flipped through and little eight-year-old me uh, figured out how the choose your own adventure is structured. And then I realized that if I just sent you back to a page you'd already been to, that the maze would become impossible to escape. And I thought that was so smart. And I am marginally kinder to my readers today. I think, I think that's brilliant. We actually were talking about writing Choose Your Own Adventure adult books in different genres. You know what? The, uh, the, the options are there. And we have seen uh, both Dana Schwartz and Neil Patrick Harris have put out Choose Your Own Adventure memoirs, which I think are fascinating. Wonderful. And Audible right now is doing a ton of experimentation with Choose Your Own Adventure audiobooks. They have brought back five of the original titles by Montgomery, whoever, and they have uh, partnered with Paizo to produce this huge Starfinder, like full on Starfinder campaign that is entirely in audio. And it's fantastic. It's uh, got great voice actors, including Nathan Fillion. Um, so let me tell you what I want to do, okay? okay? So first of all, the technology is there to do all this amazing choose your own adventure stuff through audio. But 
because they run it through the Alexa, that means that it is connected to all of the smart devices in your house. So I could do a horror story that like makes your lights flicker or turns on eerie music in another room. Like, isn't that the greatest idea? It is, you don't understand, like the, both of these girls over here that are supposed to be sitting there quiet, we're just like, <gasps> <laughs> Can you just rein it in over there? I am doing an interview. <laughs> Why we can't have nice things. Jen, actually, go ahead and tell your story of the Neil Patrick Harris biography. So I love Choose Your Own Adventures. And I was just saying when, when we were talking about this, um, I'm a savage and I read them straight through because when I was younger, I would be like, turn to page 27. No, no, that's death. Like I'm not turning to page 27. So I just read them straight through. And in the middle of the Neil Patrick Harris book, there's a secret page and it's like, hey, why are you here? Are you reading this straight through? What is wrong with you? Like, there's no reason for you to ever end up on this page. And I was like, a secret page. This is amazing. <laughs> that's great. I, I love that. Yeah, for, for super fans on that Choose Your Own Horror Adventure, since Ring unlocks the doors, too, you can really make this scary. <laughs> you have the ground team that's like, yeah. oh, someone's reading this book. They're almost on page 97. We got to go over there and rattle their windows. If you need that in Florida, you let us know. We'll go do that. No problem. We will show up and just be standing in their bedroom with a mask on. <laughs> yeah. But... Uh, I, I think the audience for interactive fiction is primed right now and doing stuff for kids, doing adult horror stories. I would love to do like a kind of cozy mystery style thing. Uh, you know, Gosford Park, Agatha Christie, there's a whole bunch of people in a manor house somewhere and you can basically just choose at any time which room you want to be in. So the whole story is going on all through the house and you just get to wander through it digitally and listen in on whatever's happening. I think th there's so many options. It could be really fun. That could be really, really fun, especially because you'll miss things. It's like a giant game of Clue. Mm -hmm. Let me get temporary to voice something. I don't know that he's able to anymore, but that would be awesome. So very cool. Okay, so you um, so you started out uh, in second grade on this writing journey and you were like, mm -hmm. I'm doing this. Um, when when did I Am Not a Serial Killer actually come out? Um, it came out 12 years ago. Okay. More or less. And I remember because um, it was when my, uh, my fourth child was born because we got the contract and uh, it, was, it was quitting money. It was big enough to go full time. Um, the, not the American one, but the, the German rights. And my wife was eight months pregnant, seven or eight months pregnant. And so we had to wait until the baby was born so we could have the baby on good insurance. <laughs> and then like the day after he was born and we paid for everything and I went into my office and quit. So I can always remember it. 12. So that means it was 12 years ago. Did you have your I'm quitting letter all revved up before that or did it, did it happen around the time? I had actually, I was really good friends with my manager. So I just told her, I'm like, it's coming. You got five weeks to replace me. So what, um, you you actually thought you were gonna write high fantasy. Yeah. You were gonna Anne McCaffrey that stuff. And that is not what happened. No, it is not. Uh, and I grew up reading fantasy. I did not grow up reading horror. 
which is why it surprised me so much that horror was the one that worked. But I wrote five fantasy novels prior to Serial Killer, and each one was increasingly dark. Uh, I was like, here's a straight fantasy. Here's a dark fantasy. Here's a really grim fantasy. Here's just a historical horror. Okay, now we'll just write a horror novel. Um, I would like to get back into fantasy. I've got one of my own that I've been working on. And in a very Anne McCaffrey style, it's like a fantasy combined with a space opera idea. Um, but I'm also uh, co-writing an epic fantasy, kind of portal fantasy with Brandon Sanderson right now called The Dark One. And that's um, who you do your podcast with, right? Yeah, the podcast is called Writing Excuses. And that is me, Brandon, Howard Taylor, and Mary Robinette Kowal. Very, very cool. When did you guys start that? Uh, we actually started that before I was published. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, it was way back in the day. So uh, in addition to uh, being super good friends with Brandon, uh, I've known his brother for years as well. And we had all graduated college, but he is a few years younger. And so he was still in college and he took an online media class. And this would have been 14 or 15 years ago. So podcasts really weren't a thing yet. Yeah. Uh, but he had to produce one for this online media class. And so he and I uh, worked together and I wrote a script for <laughs> like an old style radio serial. And we just thought that was really funny. And we did all the voices for it. And he realized in the process of producing that, that it was super easy to do. And he said, well, he went to Brandon then and said, you should do a podcast. You should do a, a writing podcast. And uh, Brandon immediately went out to Howard Taylor because he was the famous one. <laughs> uh, you know, 15 years ago, Brandon Sanderson was not yet Brandon Sanderson. He had like two books, maybe three books out. Uh, he did not have Wheel of Time yet. And so uh, Howard was the famous one and they brought me in to be the funny one because I have been writing forever, but I hadn't gotten published yet, but Brandon thought I was funny. Uh, now you notice, and then, okay, so we had the, the famous one, the funny one, and then Brandon was the one that like leads the discussion. You notice none of those are the smart one, which is why we brought Mary Robinette in uh, later. And now Brandon's the famous one and Howard's the funny one, and I'm the one who leads the discussion and Mary Robinette is the smart one. So that's how it's shaken out over you're, time. You're, no, right. Designation, you're a famous one too. Well, in most circles, yes. But when I'm sitting next to Brandon Sanderson, no, I'm not. <laughs> no, it's, it's true. It's the company you keep. That is awesome. Um, how have you found uh, the writing community? So like you had these good friends, he did the, you know, the wheel of time follow up and everything. And that's amazing. But the writing community, so this took you a little while to get this book out. So you'd written five books. What happened to those books that you wrote before I am serial killer? Uh, for the most part, they're just garbage. Uh, one of them I did go back and revise once I knew what I was doing. Uh, and that's called A Night of Blacker Darkness. It is a historical vampire comedy um, set so that's in... book four then, right? What? Book four? No, that, that one, There's a, it's just a standalone thing. No, I know, um, but was it book four in the first five? Because you said, I think, book four was the historical one, right? 
Oh, no, it was actually two. I wasn't oh. counting that one. Uh, the book four was actually a, um, or no, it was book five. The historical horror was uh, one that I refer to as Victorian Batgirl, uh, which I did end up serializing uh, the old, old unrevised version on my Patreon for a while, uh, because I just thought it was really interesting to say, hey, look, here's this book I wrote. Uh, parts of it are very good. Parts of it are very terrible. Let's look back on it 15 years later and I can comment. So I, I did like an annotated version of the first half and then I eventually got bored of doing that and stopped doing it. Um, but uh, yeah, so uh, I I have serialized that one on Patreon. I have revised Blacker Darkness and that's actually also the one that I adapted for stage. Um, it's a farce. And farce is very difficult to do on the page. And I knew even when I was writing it, this really wants to be a play. Uh, and so I eventually just went to my sister, let's say five years ago and said, hey, let's do this as a play because she works in theater. Uh, we're all pretty artistic in my family. And I said, you know theater better than I do. I've done a bunch of it, but I've never written for it. And so together we, we co-wrote this adaptation uh, and it's been produced by a couple of universities, uh, by a handful of high schools. Um, it works so much better as a play than it ever did as a book. Um, but yeah. And then the other three that nothing will ever come of those. I'm never going to do anything with those. Well, I think we all have those books as writers. You all have those books where the first thing you wrote and you're like, this never should see the light of day. And then, of course, at some time your your kids will publish it after you're gone, and everybody will be like, "This was his masterpiece." <laughs> I I promise that is not. No one will say that about this. Um, no, um, but yeah, actually, the very first one I wrote, the very first, not counting that uh, choose your own adventure maze thing, uh, the first adult novel that I wrote uh, was actually in college. And uh, I wrote it as my honors thesis for the university honors program, because somewhere in the fine print, it, there's an option to do fiction rather than a research paper. And I thought, oh, well, done and done. Let's do this. So actually, the very first book I ever wrote is in the special collections of the BYU library. Oh, wow. And what is it called for all the super fans that are going to go find this now? <laughs> It is called Deeper Into Chaos, and it is essentially Warhammer fan fiction. <laughs> it's, it's not good. I'm, I'm making a note. We're finding this. We're going to just okay. read it online. Be... <laughs> That's amazing. So Genesis A couple of years after I did it, Brandon yeah. did the same thing, and his gets stolen all the time. Uh, and so, cause you know, they produce like one hard copy version and they put it in the library and then he's got the super fans who are crazy and they go and they steal it and then they have to print another one. And after five or six thefts, they just stopped printing it. So basically okay. the quest was over it. It's a challenge to go steal your book. That's, that's what we got from this challenge. Accepted. <laughs> it's fine. We'll start a trend. So Jen is a PhD in English literature, believe it or not. Oh, that is, cool. That is, yeah, she's kind of a big deal there. And she wrote, didn't she write your, just take the accolades, Jen. I, I appreciate it. Thank you. 
Um, yeah, I wrote on uh, Tolkien and then Stephen King for my master's and then my uh, dissertation that, that turned into a book. But I love those that that first copy you get of your your thesis. That's that green ProQuest, mm-hmm. you know, has the original signed papers from your committee on top. Nice. Love it. Um, I did have a question. So you you kind of played around with the idea of a play. Have you thought about doing more screenplay directing stuff? Is that a direction? I would love to. Uh, I I don't think I would be a really great director. Mm-hmm. Um, I did do, like I said, I did a lot of theater when I was younger, mm-hmm. uh, including I was the director of my uh, high school musical my senior year. But I, I my skills have developed in other directions. I would love to write more scripts. And I've got a couple of movie ideas that I think could be fantastic. Uh, but it's it's such a different industry and it's a different style. It's a different format. Um, it took me about a year to, to write that one play, uh, which maybe sounds like it's fast. For me, that is not fast at all. Uh, just because I had to relearn all of the tropes and the formatting and the this is how you write a thing. Uh, and that happens to me every anytime I switch genres. Uh, I published a straight historical fiction spy novel earlier this year uh, with no magic, no robots, no horror monsters or anything. And that took me forever to write and to revise because it's just a very different style. Um, but can I can I tell you one of the scripts I want to write? Yes, because I was going to tell you, I actually, and I'm not saying this like, oh my God, I have friends. So my dad's, one of his very best friends is a producer in Hollywood. And he told me, because I was talking about script writing, and he told me flat out, they don't have enough real good scripts written by storytellers. And we take for granted a little bit that we're so good at world building because that's what we have to do when we write a novel is world building. And a lot of script writers forget all of that stuff. So the movies are not as um, robust. So I'm just throwing that out there that anything you do, believe it or not, they get super excited because there's a world that's behind this script. Instead of just like, here's the script, here you go, then you're done right? Mm. They love novelists to write scripts and there's not enough of them. And he tells me that all the time. I'm throwing that out there. I think you should write it. Tell me about your script. Go. Okay. So here's the pitch for this. I have been, I go to like 10 or 12 comic cons per year, not this year, obviously, but under normal circumstances, I'm constantly at conventions. And one thing that comes up all the time when you get a panel of horror authors together or crime authors or thriller authors is our Google search histories are just a nightmare. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I've heard uh, F Paul Wilson, Richard Cadry, like all these different people talk about how we're probably on a list somewhere with the FBI. And so here's, here's what I want to write. Um, there's a, at a big comic-con somewhere, not not the Comic-Con in San Diego, maybe, but some other one. Group of crime writers, thriller writers are up there talking. And one of them jokes about how there actually is a, a real FBI list where they're like, oh, this guy is researching, you know, how portable a nuclear bomb is. Uh, he's an author. We don't have to worry about that. And there happens to be an actual terrorist in the audience who hears this and you know he's 
the nerd of his terrorist group and they're planning some big terror attack. And he gets this idea and he goes up to the author and is like, hey, will you write? Can I commission you to do a write for hire crime caper novel, which is actually the real crime that his group is committing, but they're using him to do all the research for it because they know that he won't get caught because he's on this FBI list where they just ignore all the red flags in your search history. And so then he ends up unwittingly planning this massive terror attack. And meanwhile, they start really getting into the book aspect and they start changing their crime to make it more dramatic and interesting and add some plot twists and side characters and stuff. I don't know if the world is ready or interested in any way in some kind of likable terrorists, but I think that's such a great idea. I, I, I'm in love with the idea of that. I think if you added the, the, you could either make it really dark or added some degree of humor based on what the author did, because they're having to basically, in doing that, follow the formula the author has given them, right? And mm -hmm. authors can get a little excitable and add things that are not quite doable. Yeah. <laughs> when you do it. That could be really funny, but that sounds like a series to me, not just a movie. That sounds like like an eight part that series. Could be. That could be a series. That could be. And maybe the maybe the way to make it work is instead of terrorists, they could just be jewel thieves or something. And so he's planning a heist for them. Or a kidnapping. <laughs> a <laughs> kidnapping ransom. Nobody ever uh. gets away with kidnapping ransoms because of how they're done. Like, because... It, it is always the worst way they go about trying to get the ransom for kidnappings. It's like, dumb. Mm -hmm. you know? Like, look at every movie you've ever seen people say how they're going to do a kidnapping and then the ransom call comes. They're always caught with the way the ransom call is. They're not caught at the house or something with the person or where they stashed the person. It's when they, they're like, no cops. How many times have people said, don't bring cops? Like that could be an entire funny scene right there of the writer going, don't bring cops. And they're like, that never works. <laughs> we need a new scene. <laughs> Meanwhile, the person is kidnapped and is taking longer to get the ransom. Standing in the corner. <laughs> I feel like we need to check your search history, Erica, for kidnapping oh, plots. No, I already told, you already know, Jen, that I've already told several of my friends, if I ever get arrested, you need to immediately come down to the police department with my books in your hand and go, no, I promise you not a serial killer. How does long does a body take to decompose in the Florida summer? Yeah. What if they're in water? <laughs> the, uh, I, have, I have yet to meet a crime writer who doesn't claim to have the perfect crime devised. And so many people, F. Paul Wilson, again, is the one that leaps to mind because he swears that he knows the perfect crime. He could kill someone and never get caught. And I've never met a crime writer who doesn't believe that they would be an absolutely brilliant criminal. And I think that's a really funny aspect of the industry. You could, you could literally write a series called The Perfect Crime and you could have a serial killer or something who constantly engages authors to write the perfect crime to see if it comes true. <laughs> you see look at us spitballing ideas but that's actually not a bad idea because it's true it's interesting when you when you do research and you're looking at true crime stuff like i always joke all the time like 
leave your cell phone at home. Like if you do nothing else, please, dear God, go put your cell phone at a party. Doesn't matter, but don't take it with you. Everybody, like if you watch Snapped or all these shows, it's always like blah, blah, blah. And then their cell phone was pinged off of the tower that for some reason was right next to the murder site versus the house where they said they were 300 miles away. I'm like, how dumb do you have to be to do that? Well, in the defense of criminals, uh, fiction (laughs) in general, still 30 years later, has not caught up to the reality of cell phones. Uh, because they, they've been the single most disruptive element of modern storytelling, I think, since modern storytelling was a thing. Nobody knows how to use them. Uh, authors are continually frustrated by how easy communication has become, and all of the old plot tropes and all of the old obstacles that we used to be able to use don't work anymore because you can talk to anyone anywhere at any time. I, would and, say- uh, I think actually that's one of the reasons that 80s nostalgia has become such a huge wave in fiction right now is because nobody has cell phones. Actually, would- Jeff Strand, do you know Jeff Strand? Have you met uh, him? Yes. Yeah. I, I don't know him well, but I've met him a few times. Very. Oh, he's, he's very epic straight man. Epic straight man. He's so funny. But he wrote um, a, a book called Blister intentionally, and he said he placed it in the 80s because it was about this girl who's deformed. I'm not going to give away the whole plot. And she's in a shed and it wouldn't have worked with the phone. We talk, me and Jen talk about all the time because like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, that entire series would not have worked if they had cell phones. Mm -hmm. Because the entire series was them going, hey, do you know where Buffy is? Do you know where Blah is? Quick, let's, let's not try to even call the house that they might be at. Let's actually leave, run down all the dark streets to go find them in a dark alley because obviously that's where they're at. Yeah. What were you going to say? Uh, X Files was an early adopter of cell phones, but they mm-hmm. still used them very inconsistently. Like when the plot required someone to run through a dark alley, they would forget they had cell phones. And then when the plot required them to communicate, the cell phones would work inside of a refrigerated freight car buried in the desert, you know? Mm-hmm. So people, authors, writers in general, we're still trying to figure out phones. No, I agree. What were you going to say, Jen? I was just the Buffy thing. And then like that idea of the missed message, that's that's Shakespeare, right? We've been doing that for hundreds of years and that doesn't work anymore. You're like, how would you miss a message unless, oh, the phone dies? That's like the, oh, my phone Mm -hmm. is dead on, you know, when I break down on a deserted road or there's no service here. So you can play with those, but yeah, it definitely changes the the game. I think also authors are not not all authors, so this isn't a general statement, no hate mail, thank you anyway. But um, I think a lot of times authors are, are not necessarily the shitty people in the world. And you, you have to be willing to go down the rabbit hole, depending on what you're writing, especially if it's horror or something like that, of what the really shitty people are using technology to do. Yeah. And you know, if you're, if you're not willing to research, you know, one, one thing Val, who's one of the fangirls in the background here talks about all the time is researching. And I think that's an aspect of research of how do you utilize it? Where does it work? We've all had situations where our cell phone doesn't get service, right? So you can legitimately put that into the plot line if it works, but you can't be like, I'm in the middle of Manhattan on a busy street and my cell phone didn't work. Like that's, everybody's Mm -hmm. gonna be like, who's your carrier? Like switch to T-Mobile or something like, you know, 
but I think it's, it's figuring out how to utilize that. But I agree with you. I think that, that, that whole aspect is interesting. I will say, like, as far as genres, though, I think romance has probably nailed it. They use texting, they use phones, like romance is embracing the new technology where, you know, horror, it seems like it it just makes it harder. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I I think we are starting to see it, especially now that we're getting authors who grew up with cell phones, who've never known what it was like in the before times. Uh, and so that is going to change things too. No, but now I look at the pandemic and I, w- I want to know how this is going to change storytelling because I think we can count on one hand, you know, the number of TVs, movies, and books that have just fully embraced it and said, I'm going to tell stories set during this quarantine and this pandemic. I'm going to tell stories, you know, at what point are we going to see the Law and Order series where all the investigators wear masks and all the court cases are over Zoom. Like, is that gonna be a thing? Uh, Or are people right now, are we writing stories set during the pandemic? I'm still telling most of my stories as if the pandemic didn't exist. Um, And how are we gonna be able to tell stories about what comes next? Because we still don't know what comes next. We're in the middle of a big social singularity that we don't know what it's going to look like next year. Is this going to be cured? Is there going to be a vaccine? Are we going to be wearing masks for the next 50 years? No, it's true. It's interesting. Um, one of the things I saw, so I watched a show called The Blacklist. I don't mm-hmm. know if you guys have ever seen it. It's got, um, what is it? James Spader in it and stuff like that. It's, it's, you know, it's a little cheesy, but it's a pretty good show. And their last episode, so not this, what would have been the series finale, I think it was episode 19 of 22, but the pandemic hit. And so of course they were waiting to wrap it up and then there's no wrapping it up. What they did is they actually, they had some scenes filmed, but then they went in and they got people to do anime characters basically, or cartoon characters, whatever to fill in the scenes and do voiceover. And you can tell they're voiceovering over a Zoom or something like that to record huh. the, the scenes and even the interaction with each other. That's why I say Zoom, because I think they probably got on a Zoom and like read the scenes opposite each other, but they had cartoon characters and they got on. And at the beginning of the episode, they were like, listen, we miss all of you guys. We want you to be safe. They record in New York. So they were like, we're all home during the pandemic. It took some figuring out, but we figured out how to do this. And this will be the final episode for you guys um, until we get back from the pandemic. But we want to thank all the fans and stuff. And so there were some real scenes and then it did this like TV thing where it switched to the you know, kind of cartoony characters or whatever you want to call it. And they were still the voice actors doing the entire scene. And then it would suddenly switch because you could tell the parts that they recorded, which also teaches people that they don't record these in a linear fashion. Like they're like this Mm -hmm. scene and then this scene and then this scene. And I, and I thought it was pretty interesting, but there is a show that's on, I want to say it's on Netflix or maybe it's Hulu that is literally recorded in the pandemic time. And there are shields, like people are talking through different, like at their desk, they have the plastic shields and stuff like that, but they're doing it without masks on, but through like the plastic guy. I know that Superstore, uh, which is not a show that I enjoy. So I haven't watched any of the new stuff, but they have fully embraced the pandemic and they just have like all the commercials show actors in masks and stuff. 
And I, I kind of want to try again to stomach the show um, just because I'm fascinated to see how they're handling it. Well, it's just a smart way to do it because otherwise everybody's out of work. Like, yeah, maybe we got to do something. Right. I was going to say there's some like love in the time of COVID. Um, Oh, commercials for right. Um, but I was just wondering, like, is this the, like, nothing stops a Hallmark movie, right? Yeah. But the the idea, like, if this is the future of storytelling, it's almost easier because everybody has access to a device. Well, I say that, of course, as a super privileged person, but like your actors are, are they're going to be able to be online. So are we going to have musicals that are just going to be people in their own little cup? You know, we're going to get the Brady Bunch all the time when uh, when we're watching our entertainment. I don't know. It's an interesting question. I did want to ask you, like, how how's the pandemic affecting you in your your writing? Like, is it is it helping? Is it hurting? How's it going? Well, it's uh, I, I have to recognize that and I, and I have to admit that the pandemic has not affected my career in the way that it has affected a lot of people. Like I work from home anyway. And so, um, you know, when this first started, I was a lot more cavalier about it and a lot more kind of quick to judge people who were going out in the middle of what was supposed to be a lockdown. Um, and I, and I, I had to come to that point and realize, you know, this doesn't really affect me much. Um, I work from home anyway. I've got six kids. So there's eight people in the house. And so I'm not like starved for human interaction the way a lot of people are. Um, it hasn't been a big deal. On the other hand, um, I, I've got a cartoon saved that I saw someone put out in March of uh, somebody on a rowboat in the middle of the ocean surrounded by sharks saying, Oh, well, now that I've got nothing going on, I can write that novel. <laughs> and uh, just because I don't have other distractions going on doesn't mean that I'm not super stressed out and, you know, dealing with all of this constant emotional fatigue that's kind of become the norm for us over the last nine months. So what I did early on, this is actually how I became a professional game master, is uh, in March... I thought this is something I've always wanted to try because I've got a friend who does it and she kind of showed me how to set it up and, and how you can actually make it lucrative. And then in March, when I realized everyone's stuck at home and no one gets you know that starved for human interaction idea, I decided to just pull the trigger and try it. And uh, it really exploded. And so that has become the majority of the work that I do is uh, planning and running these eight different RPG campaigns weekly. Continue. Yeah. Um, and so I am still writing, but I have actually not this year written any novels. I have written a ton of freelance work for shorts and for game fiction and for adventure writing for RPGs. Uh, but I... I have to get back into noveling now. I've done a few edits. Uh, I did put out, like I said, uh, a, a historical fiction this year. I've got another uh, middle grade that's coming out in a couple of months, I think in December. Um, so there, there's still novel work going on, but actual just brand new sit down, originate a story that has all been in shorts. So 
it has affected me more than I more than I think that it has when I really sit down and look at it. Have, have you thought about creating your own RPG system like in your in your world or are you good playing in other sandboxes? Um Oh, that's a probing question, Jack. Like to reinvent the wheel, but like, you know, you're, you, you you play enough games and you're like, this would be better if, and this would be better This would if. be better. And I do tend to house rule a lot of things. Um, I've got uh, a friend who actually is an RPG designer by trade, Alan Barr, who runs Gallant Night Games. And his, his games are all fantastic and you should all go play them. Um, and so at least for now... In my head, the plan, if I ever decide to actually create an RPG, is just to go to him and say, hey, let's create an RPG. Because, again, it's a brand new skill that I don't really have. And relying on a professional to do what he is expert in uh, seems like a, a better choice. Uh, that said, I have started working on what might be uh, two different role-playing campaigns that I could put out licensed through other systems if that's what I decide to do. I don't know if I will, uh, but I'm doing so much of that kind of work anyway right now that I think, oh, okay, I, I, can, I, I can see how I could put this together. The thing is, if there's an industry where you make less money for your writing than novels, it's role-playing games. And so I just don't know if it makes sense to do it, uh, but, you know, I end up doing what I love all the time anyway, regardless of financial propriety. So we'll see what happens. Awesome. Okay, we got to take a quick commercial break and we'll be right back. Okay. This is the voice of Drinking with Authors. You are at our commercial break and our commercial is, hey, do you want to be a guest on our show? Or do you have a question for one of the guests on our show? Or do you have a brilliant drink recipe that we've never heard of? That would have to stump us. But you could reach us at drinkingwithauthors at gmail.com or on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. You can direct message or even just leave a comment on one of our posts. We would absolutely love to hear from you. Well, we're back recording, so we can talk to you. I'll talk to you for two hours. You have no idea. My producer will be like, what the crap sticks were you doing? And then I'm going to be like, it's Dan Wells. Shut the fuck up. Fine. So, um, I want to talk about, um, I want to talk about, so you, um, I love that book. Um, when you decided and you finally, you know, Brandon was like, go write a horror book and you're like, fine. That's how I imagined it happened in my mind. Um, what, how did you, (laughs) I, I feel like he's like, go do it now. Um, and it was in a coffee shop. I decided that it all. I, I'm going to write this scene. Coffee okay. shop. Mid after. <laughs> I won't argue. Yeah. Um, what? How did you get there? How did you arrive at this character? I love this character. How did you arrive at the lead character in the book? Um, it came from. Uh, at the time, I worked for a scrapbooking company, which was just oh. very, very froofy, very. Uh, lovey-dovey kind of place where everything had to be cute and wonderful all the time. It's scrapbooking. I mean, that's, yeah. that's what everything um, is. And, and so kind of as a defense mechanism for my own psyche, I would spend all of my lunch break reading true crime websites and stuff like that. 
And I've always been fascinated by serial killers ever since I was little. But, uh, you know, I wallpapered my cubicle with pictures of zombies and I would read about like all these awful crimes and uh, stumbled across uh, what's called the McDonald Triad, which has since in the last 20 years been debunked. It's, it's the idea that uh, serial killers, there are three traits shared by like 95, 98% of serial killers, which are pyromania, uh, bedwetting and animal cruelty. And that's not true but at the time, people thought that it was, and it was one of the early principles of psychological profiling for abnormal psychology and, and criminal behavior. So that got me really thinking, and that kind of sent me down the rabbit hole of, well, what are the signs? And the FBI uh, has like a 17-point checklist of if you check yes on most or all of these, then you have strong tendencies towards serial killer behavior. Uh, and so... I was sharing all of this with Brandon, not in a coffee shop, but in a car as we were driving home from our writing group where I had sent them yet another dark fantasy novel. Uh, and he said, you know, that's a really great first line for a book. There are three traits common to all serial killers. I have all of them. And I thought that is a really great line for a book. Um, and that's not the first line of uh, serial killer but that's where the idea started was the idea of someone who has every possible predictor of serial killer behavior, but is trying hard to be good. And I had to noodle around on that concept for about a year before I came up with the book itself. Uh, because I thought, you know, I could go funny with this for a long time. It was almost like an Adams family kind of story where everyone in the family had a different weird quirk. There was a serial killer and there was a witch and there was a cannibal and there were all these different things. Um, and I eventually kind of stumbled onto this, um, you know, what made it work for me was the idea that uh, the monster is more human than he is, uh, which is why it had to be a supernatural story. There had to be a monster in it because I wanted to tell the story about the boy who does not feel like he is a part of the human race. That's one of the hallmarks of sociopathy is that you do not feel connected to other people and then contrast that to an actual inhuman monster who loves people and wants to be one of us and considers himself to be as human as, as possible, even though he is clearly not. Uh, and that is kind of what finally clicked everything into place and made me realize exactly who the character needed to be in order to tell that particular story. Well, you know, one of the things I loved about your, I, I loved a lot of things about your story. One, I like that you said that uh, cannibalism was a quirk. First of all, I'm going to start there because <laughs> you know, that's not going to put you on the FBI's most wanted list. Yeah, not um, at all. I, one of the things I really liked was being a part of the story. Like it really was very almost like um, true crime. Like you really stuck to that until the moment it turned. And I thought, that was actually really brilliant because I remember the moment, and I'm not going to give it away, that the monster part of this is revealed, like the actual not normal human crazy person. But the way that you wrote the killer was so like normal human serial, not extra weirdness. Like you, you almost, and I and I love this, actually it's funny the way you say about the car thing was um, you get to the point and I'm like, what? 
Like, and it was great. Not bad what, but like, oh my God, because you had me down the whole path of another serial killer in this town until that moment, not revealing it. And I was like, this is fucking awesome. That's what I literally was like reading. I'm like, this is fucking <laughs> awesome the way he did this. Because I was down the whole fucking Ted Bundy in the town path kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And that's... Well, and, and that's very that's very good that you had that reaction. That is an incredibly divisive moment. And in fact, if you go jump on Amazon or Goodreads or something and look up my one-star reviews, that's what they hate. And so I think it really just depends on audience. If you are primed to discover seven chapters in a supernatural element you were not prepared for, then the book is fantastic. If you thought it was true crime and you're not ready to go, oh, wait, it's a monster? Then it feels like a betrayal. It feels like I lied to you. And people get really, really pissed off. Um, one of my favorite reviews that I've ever gotten was uh, a guy on Amazon who was like, this is one of the best books I've ever read until it turns out it's supernatural. I don't read books for children about talking animals. There's no talking animals in it and it's not for children. But if you have that idea that fantasy and speculative fiction are somehow lesser, they are less prestigious or they are less important or they are less valuable, then just the mere presence of the supernatural element changed this from the best book he'd ever read to a stupid thing for children. The quality of the writing doesn't change from chapter six to chapter seven. It's just now it's a different genre than you thought it was. And that has really divided audiences. But I think that's great. So it's funny you said you're driving in a car. So one of the first short stories I released, I kept trying to tie this whole happy ending into this story. Like I kept, and I was driving with Jen actually, and I'm telling her, like, I can't get past this point. It was a short story. And I'm like, and this, and she's like, and, and Jen is one of those people that'll read the last pages of a book to see if the lead character is still there because if they're not she's not interested in reading the book she won't read it i've watched her do this for more than a sorry salvatore ruined me i'm sorry yeah it's it's well then there's a story i have to tell you but finish this story first okay so i was we're driving and she goes literally she goes why do you have to have a happy ending and i don't know why that like was the pivotal moment in part of my writing career that none of my horror stories have happy endings, like none of them, because I realized how fucked up people would be going through. Like your characters, you can see as you go through the book series, how messed up they get from this entire interaction. You don't come out of this thing unscathed, right? When you have a horrible thing happen, that that doesn't happen. But it was interesting for me, even in um, when we're talking about reviews. So that first story I wrote, I literally got a review that said, um, Erica Lance is an author that likes to punch you in the fucking face. And they were so mad. That's literally what it says on Amazon, but they use some little characters to not say fucking, but um, it says that. And it says that basically they're so pissed off because they liked the writing, they liked the story. And then I didn't have a happy ending to it. And they, they hated it. They were so mad that I didn't have a happy ending. That's Jen. To this story. And I think it's funny when you get those reviews because I read that and I went, 
this is an acknowledgement because that's the effect I wanted to create. Like when people yeah. read my stories at the end, I want them to go, what the fuck just happened? Like, <laughs> Yeah. So one of my best friends is another horror writer named Steve Diamond. And uh, what he says uh, on a panel once someone was asking, you know, where what's actually the line between like horror and urban fantasy? Uh, because they're both dealing with the same tropes, but there's a tonal difference. What is that difference? And he said, well, urban fantasy, you e even when you lose, you can still win in the end. And in horror, even when you win, it still feels like you lost. And I think that's just an incredibly pithy way of perfectly encapsulating the genre of horror. Even if you win, it still feels like you lose. Um, Anne Radcliffe, who was writing gothic horror kind of contemporary with Jane Austen, she said uh, very famously, and this is paraphrased, that um, there is, man, what is it? Let me make sure that I get it right. It's okay, it's drinking with authors. You don't have to get them on the show. Yeah, That's I'm a little cool intoxicated on this water. <laughs> um, she's talking about the difference between uh, fear and uh, dread. That fear is when you're worried that something bad is going to happen. Dread is when you realize that something bad has already happened and there's nothing you can do about it. And oh. I love looking at horror from that perspective. And I think you can see that reflected in our culture all the time. There was a massive boom of horror in the wake of 9-11 because our entire culture was waking up to the fact that something horrible had already happened and there was nothing we could do about it. And this is how we process those emotions through fiction is by telling each other ghost stories. That Stephen King has a, an essay um, you know, he always always writing essays, but he has a thing on horror where he says you have to feed the alligators in the basement of, of the human psyche. And that's what horror does. And mm -hmm. then he compares it to a roller coaster, right? Like you're scared on a roller coaster, but you know, you're going to be okay. So when you read a horror novel, like, you know, you're going to be okay, but you are watching the car go off the tracks for everybody else. So, and that's yeah. that whole feeding your you're darker. I'm going to get out all of my, it's the catharsis. It goes all the way, you know. Yes, yeah, it is. And um, another, we're just constantly name dropping. This is what happens when English majors talk to each other. <laughs> um, Michael Collings is a brilliant a kind of horror professor. And he's written some books uh, as, as well. And what he says about horror is that it is, that catharsis comes from the fact that no matter what you have just watched the characters go through, you lived through it. You've been with them through all the horrible things. You've watched them die or get eaten or kill each other or whatever horrible things have happened, but then you survive at the end. And the fact that you can close the book knowing that you survived, that you overcame it, is incredibly uplifting. It's rejuvenating in a way that people who are not fans of horror don't understand. Like, why would you want to read this awful thing? Well, it's because I lived through it. And it's because I can, I can set it down and say, you know what? I beat it. I went through that and I came out the other side, uh, may, maybe not better, but certainly not worse. And that is a triumphant feeling. And it also makes you appreciate your life. Like all of a sudden your problems, not so bad. Like I could be mm -hmm. broken down in the middle of the road and being chased by a killer right now. You know what? The fact that I have a lot of work to get done, not really a problem. <laughs> I should stop whining. 
At least I'm not yeah. being murdered. I need mm-hmm. that like monogrammed, embroidered <laughs> on a thing on my wall. I'm not being stalked by a serial killer. I'm good. I'm good. So you wrote, I'm not a serial killer. When you wrote that, did you go, this is going to be a series? I know, this is going to be so many books. I'm good. Or did you go, cool, I did the book. Moving on. I was trying to plan it because I, I knew he was a good series character. He had all the harm, hallmarks of being a really great series character that we could do a whole ongoing thing with him. Uh, but my strategy for the book, because I had never been published prior to that, was just, I'm going to write the best single book that I can and not worry about sequels, not worry about series. If there is a chance later to write more books about this kid, then I will. But I'm I'm just going to focus on this story and, you know, telling a complete thing with a good ending. And then uh, when it was actually Moshe Fetter was the editor that bought it at Tor. And he loved it. And he called me and he's like, hey, this is great. I want to buy this. I would love to buy sequels. Do you have any planned? And I said, yes, of course I do. Let me send you those notes in the morning. And then I sat down (laughs) and just banged out back of the napkin two super fast plots. And uh, kind of hinging on the idea of let's take classic serial killer behavior and explain it supernaturally. And so I picked like the toy box killer. It was the inspiration for the second one or Gary Heidnick, kind of a combination of the two. And then for the third, I said, let's take a stalker. And how can we explain that supernaturally? And then that turned into a concept of possession and obsession and just sent those notes off the next morning and books two and three of the series actually hew remarkably close to those quick dashed off story ideas, much, much closer than I expected them to at the time. I, I love those. The, what I thought was interesting is the per, you know, your lead character in, as he progresses through the book series changes though from trying to distance himself, right? Mm-hmm. In, in my mind, this is all my mind because I'm the reader, not the writer, yeah. obviously. Um, he tries to distance himself, but he becomes the hunter. What yeah. how, What made you kind of go, you know what, we're going to change this up because... Uh, it just, I, I wanted to let him grow. Um, and I, I knew he could be a good series character, like I said, but I didn't want him to feel stagnant. And by the time you get to the end of book two, and he's been through this twice, part of it actually is because I was a big fan of Buffy and I was trying to figure out, well, how can I explain all these monsters in his little town without just going the Hellmouth route? Uh, I need a better idea than that. Or not a better one, but a different one. I need my own version of why are there all these monsters? And, um, you know, so the explanation for book two, why is there a second monster in this tiny little Midwestern town? is because the news story in book one went national and one of these other monsters recognized it and is like, oh, that's where he's been all these years. I need to go see if I can find him. And so that's what brings the second one to town. And then my explanation for the third one is, well, what brings the third one to town? He calls it. I think I mostly just liked the kind of joke of him summoning a demon over the phone um 
And so he, he ends up, you know, with a cell phone that has some demon phone numbers in it because there is this community of them living out there parasitically on our society. And so he just calls one and he's like, Hey, I killed two of your friends. You're next. Come get me. And that is so many people's favorite moment in the entire series is that end of book two, where he's like, bring it uh, and turns the tables on them. And it mostly just came because I was trying to explain how to get all these extra monsters into the story. Do you, um, when it came to starting to research, because there are all manner, you talked about the toy box killer and stuff like that. How far down the research rabbit hole, like how bad is your search history here? Oh, my word. <laughs> um, it is not good. Um, yeah, I, you know, I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, uh, which is one of the primary hunting grounds of Ted Bundy. It's the first place he was caught. He was uh, living in Salt Lake, killing long-haired blonde college students during the same period in which my mother was a long-haired blonde college student. Um, Carol DeRanch, the first woman who ever escaped from Ted Bundy, did so on a street corner about a mile from my house when she threw himself out of the car. She was picked up uh, at what's called the Cottonwood Mall, which we used to shop at all the time. And so I grew up, and I don't know how I clued in at a very, very young age to the existence of all this local serial killer lore, but I did and have been surrounded and fascinated by it my entire life. Today, uh, so Carol DeRanch, just to continue the story, um, serial killers, one of the theories about how they kill is that the need builds up and builds up until they can't control themselves anymore. And so when Carol DeRanch escaped from him, uh, that night, a high school student disappeared from Woods Cross High School, which is in the next valley up. Um, and there is no evidence of this, but there is a ton of circumstantial evidence. And a lot of the people who have worked closely with the Ted Bundy case believe that that high school student who disappeared that night was his next victim. He had to kill somebody. He couldn't kill Durant, and So he came here and he found this other person. Uh, my kids go to that high school now. And so just being surrounded by it constantly has always made me, you know, I've, I've always been fascinated by it. And so long before I ever thought I'm going to write a book about serial killers, I have been reading all of this stuff and I love reading about it. It's, it's dark and it's horrible, but it's kind of like what we were talking about that you come out the other side and you've lived through it. Uh, one story that I would love to tell, and I never will because I, I know I would tell it wrong, is the, the story of or inspired by James Bolger. He's the three-year-old in London that was uh, tortured and murdered by two like nine-year-old kids. They kidnapped him from a mall, literally on a whim, and then they took him off. They realized they didn't know what to do with him. They didn't want to get in trouble by like abandoning him or giving him back. And they, they ended up killing him. And it's an absolutely heart-wrenching, mind-destroying story. It is so sad. But 
you know, one, one of the things that a true crime writer or a crime writer or a horror writer of any kind has to do is get into the heads of the perpetrators rather than just the victims. And there's so much pain and tragedy built into the lives of those two boys that killed Bolger. And I can't find a way, I have been working on this story for more than 10 years to try to find the route in there that presents this as both a horrible, awful crime, respectful of James Bolger, while also showing the horrible, awful, whatever it was that led to the two boys doing what they did to him. And I have not been able to crack that nut, but those kinds of stories and the, like I said, the just gut-wrenching sadness at the heart of them will always be fascinating to me. And I love reading about that stuff, even while it is horrible and makes me sad to read about it. You know what I mean? I, no, I, I know exactly. I write, Jen, Jen doesn't write horror. I write horror. I know exactly what you mean. What's interesting, you say that about that high school, because it was the night of a play and it was one of the kids in the play that ended up getting killed. The yes, girl in yes, the play. So you, you know the story. Perfect. I do, because actually on, I want to say either on Amazon or on Netflix, one of the streaming services, they actually have an interview. They have a, I want to say it's a six part series with his girlfriend. Ted Bundy's girlfriend, mm. because she was with him before he started killing. But it tells the story, and it tells the story from the women's perspective of all these women. And the girl who was jumped out of the car, she's on there and she talks about it. And she talks about where it was in relation to the school in that night, because the reason actually there was a, a woman who was um, working at the school who was in the play as something, I forget what she was who ran into Ted Bundy first. And that's how they now have linked it together is she's come forward and said, no, he approached me, asked me to come outside to help him with something. And I thought it was really weird. And I walked away. Like you should, you should listen, watch this yeah, show. I need to find You're, that. Yeah. Um, I'll actually find it for you and I'll, I'll email it to you. I'm not telling okay. you your email address, but I'll email it to you. But um, she's talks about how guilt ridden she has been through the years because this encounter, which she brushed off as just, you know, creepy dude, whatever. She knows this girl was killed because she didn't leave the building to mm. go with him. And the yeah, amount of like guilt that's hard. weighed on her for years because of this situation. Hmm. And it's interesting because they link that all together. And a lot of people don't know this hypothetically about Ted Bundy, but at the very last moment when the governor was like, nope, we're putting you to death he was willing to start communicating about all the crimes nobody knows he committed along the highway routes and how the mm -hmm. highways led to him being able to kill people because he'd drive up and down the highways and pick up hitchhiking girls and kill them, right? Yeah. And he started, and the governor of the state of Florida went, nope, we're putting you to death. So he was never able to tell about all of the crimes he thinks he committed. Yeah. Well, and I can... I can kind of see the governor's perspective on this because there have been plenty of examples of, of serial killers who start admitting to crimes they didn't actually commit, either because they want to pad their numbers or they want to freak people out or they want to cover for other people just to mess with the system. Uh, but yeah, um, so Al Carlisle, who's the 
the first psychiatrist who actually interviewed Bundy when he was in the Salt Lake Penitentiary. Um, he's got a really fascinating story where he talks about, um, and I've known Al for years, I've got most of his books downstairs, uh, where he talks about those, those early talks where he was, uh, you know, in, in, first of all, the process of determining, okay, yes, this person is violent rather than just the burglar we picked up. Uh, but then also later, he had a chance after the escape and recapture to talk to him again and started piecing things together. And there's a, there's a theory about serial killers that I happen to love. I don't know if it's true, but I love it, which is that in a majority of cases, the first kill is a botched rape that uh, they don't set out to murder but they try to do something else to rape or to abduct or something and it goes wrong and they kill and then they kind of get that thrill and then they don't get caught and they realize, oh my goodness, this opens up a whole new world. Uh, and there was a woman, a, a little girl, like 12 or 13 year old girl who disappeared from Ted Bundy's neighborhood back when he was in high school. And uh, Al says that uh, you know every time he would mention that girl to Bundy, that he would just freak out and clam up and stop talking. And it's the only one of the potential victims that seems to freak Bundy out whenever it is mentioned. And he's never admitted to it. There's no evidence tying him to it. But mention of that girl's name will just cause him to completely shut down. And so I love this kind of stuff. This is horrible. I'm sure there are people out there who are like, why are you talking about this? I wanted a cool let's talk to an author about his books thing. And now you're talking about botched rapes and serial killers. It's this is what, authors. again, what I write for everybody gets knows. me going. I love this kind of stuff. And yes, it's tragic. And yes, it's awful. And, uh, you know, I remember when I was very first touring with serial killer, I actually was doing a book tour in England. And whereas here it's published as kind of a general fiction adult horror in England, they published it as YA. So, my book tour over there was basically me going around to a bunch of junior highs talking to kids about serial killers. And I remember one of these, you know, chubby little like 11 year old kids, uh, you know, when we get to the Q and A portion, he raised his hand. He says, what's the most horrible way that anyone has ever killed anyone? And I'm like, that is, you are way too young for me to answer that question for you. Uh, do you have a different question? And he said, yes. Who's your favorite serial killer? And I get that all the time. And uh, Erica, you you might you you sound like enough of a fan that you might be getting that question as well. And I'm always very clear to say I don't have a favorite serial killer. They're horrible people. They do horrible things. I am not a fan of them. I am an enthusiast for abnormal psychology and for true crime, and that's very different. I definitely have, you know, certain killers that I find the most fascinating, but I will never call them a favorite because I need to keep those lines very clearly drawn. Well, I think I, I agree. And I think saying favorite makes it seem, again, like what you said, like you're a fan. It's not a fan so much as I get to circle all the way back to, I think there are certain things that humans do that most other humans can't even think with like it can't even compute in their brain that somebody is 
possibly able, like I actually had a conversation yesterday because I'm, I'm writing a series called Florida Hunting Grounds and there are going to be two books in each serial killer this particular mm -hmm. um, main character comes across. And one of the things I thought about was there is a lot of serial killers around children, kind of to your point, the children killing children, but there's a lot of serial killers who have killed children, right? And they're not the ones that are talked about a lot because you go, where is that line? Where can I talk about it? Because talking about people killing children or doing anything to children, kind of like talking about killing animal, like you could kill five dudes in your book, but you kill one dog and you're like the worst oh, person in the John entire Wright. world. Yeah. In you Mr. Know? Monster, I torture a woman to death on screen right there on the page. And the thing people get mad about is the cat who dies. Exactly. Exactly. And I think it's so, I think it's interesting when, when people talk to me about this and then how can I go to dark places? I've gotten that as a question. Like, what is it like going there? And I'm like, I'm not living there. I'm vacationing. Like I go there just to do this thing, but to prove that there's, you know, these layers that people go to and how far down the layer do you go though? Like mm -hmm. how far down the layer of killing children can you go before you, you know, to your point, writing that story, it is a fascinating, I know a lot about that story too. Right. And those kids and you peel back the layers and you go, you don't want to say, for instance, like, just as an example, Ted Bundy grew up with a mother in a family where they told him this was his older sister for six years of his life until she got remarried. And then they went, no, that's your mother. Mm -hmm. like a lot of people don't know that. So here's, this is your growing up as an identity. And I say that I don't want a single person to go, you're trying to make him a victim. But a lot of these serial killers, not all of them, but a lot of them, you go back to the traumatizing points of their childhood and you go, how do you tell that? How do you explain? Because it doesn't yeah. explain that they killed all these people, but it does. People, people have this strong tendency to view any form of explanation as an excuse. And no, you can explain why a killer is doing what they're doing without excusing or justifying the crimes that they're committing. And I think that that is, you know, the, the main difference between the audience for my books and the audience for other people's books is they're willing to cross that line and say, okay, I know that you're not excusing this. You're just explaining how and why it's happening. No, totally. Okay. I have to ask this question because I, I, I know I'm not the answer because I haven't been able to fangirl in person since I met you one time and then became a fangirl. So this is just a prep that this may happen. But anyway, okay. what is the weirdest fan moment you've had? Okay, I've got the best story for this. Are you ready? Oh, I love this. Dude, <laughs> yeah. So um, my, my books sell okay in the United States. But uh, I am a uh, multiple, you know, multi-platinum bestseller, whatever, in Germany. And a huge mega bestseller in South America. And in fact, South America is the only place where I've ever been recognized on the street because my books are really, really big there. That's happened in Mexico, Bolivia, and Peru, or are not Peru, in uh, Argentina. Are so, they translated or? Yeah, they, they're translated. Um, I, part of the reason is because I speak Spanish very well. And so I didn't do my own translations, but I can do interviews and radio shows. And I've been on TV there and, and a few things like that. 
And so it's easier for me to promote to them than it is for a lot, a lot of uh, US authors to do it. But for whatever reason, my books have really exploded in South America. So a few years ago, I was in uh, Argentina in Buenos Aires for the international book fair that they have there. And I, you know, peripheral to the book fair, they asked me if I would be willing to teach a writing class at the, uh, not the embassy, but like this uh, cross-cultural school that they have in downtown Buenos Aires. And so I was there and I taught the whole class and, you know, they, they had a translator on hand for me in case anything happened, but I was able to do the whole class in Spanish and it all worked out really well. And then at the end, I was signing everyone's books and they were all, you know, again, the, it's mostly a YA audience there. And so it was all teenagers. And this one girl, maybe 15 or 16 years old, uh, you know, at the end, I signed her books and she said, por favor, puedo lamerte la cara. And I didn't know what that verb lamer means. And so I looked over at the translator and she was just red as a beet. And she says, she wants to lick your face. And I said, no, no, uh, sorry, you can't do that. Thank you very much, but I can't do that. And so that night was the big speech that I gave at the book fair. And they had me in this huge hall and there were you know, several thousand people. And we did this whole thing, big Q and A, and I gave a little speech. And then at the very end of it, they asked me that question. What's the weirdest fan interaction you've ever had? And so I started saying, well, actually, earlier today, there was a girl who asked if she could lick my face. And way at the back of this hall, this girl stands up and just screaming, waving her hands, that was me! That was me! And, <laughs> and so, yeah, that's... that to this day, I think is the funniest thing that, that has happened. So to clarify, you are not allowed to lick your face. I just want no, to make, make I, uh, it clear for all fans, mm -hmm. no face licking allowed. No face licking. Um, my, my wife, I suppose, is allowed to lick my face. Nobody else. My dogs, <laughs> they can get away with it. That's where I draw the line. That, okay, now we now we understand where the lines are drawn on this point. <laughs> and it's a fairly low bar in terms yeah, of appropriate interaction. Say, that's not that's there. Has anybody ever dressed up as one of your characters besides obviously in the movie? But I mean, and showed up at your booth dressed uh, as yeah characters. in um, San Jose Comic Con the first year they did that, which I want to say was sixteen. Um. A woman showed up dressed as uh, Kira Walker from the cover of the Partials novel, uh, which I thought was awesome. And she's like, hey, I dressed up as your character. And I said, which one? And she had to turn around because the cover is just, you see a woman's back with like this very particular kind of shirt and, and strap thing on. And so she turned around and then I immediately recognized it. And I was like, oh, that's so great. That is awesome. That is awesome. I but think I think that might be the only one, honestly. I don't get a lot of cosplay. Um, well, now Gauntlet Throne again. Dan Wells cosplay when we get back <laughs> to being able to be in person. Obviously, you need to... All this is doing... I'm just making notes like, dress up as Dan Wells' character. <laughs> not creepy at all. I'm not going to ask to lick your face. Don't worry. I, I can oh, control myself most of the time. Okay, cool. Well, um, 
how do you know it's it's sort of silly for me to ask this but we're getting near the end of the episode how do people find you what do you consider the best way to contact or look you up or anything not your house address please don't do that we had somebody start to do that on the show one time and i was yeah, like definitely no, no, we're not doing no, that. <laughs> i'm not telling anyone where my house is uh, actually another fan interaction that i've had uh is that serial killer series has earned me a lot of very sociopathic fans um, and I get fan mail a lot, not as much anymore because the books aren't new, but back in the day, it was a good one or two a week where it was finally, somebody is writing a book that describes what it's like inside my head. Uh, which is why to some extent, I don't really worry about being attacked by anyone because I've got a legion of incredibly creepy fans who will seek retribution if anybody messes with my family. Uh, but one of these early letters was like, hey, I love your books. It's so great. Uh, it's so wonderful to see, you know, my own thought process written so well and so evocatively. Thank you so much. By the way, you need to be very careful about what you put online because I was able in about 10 minutes to learn all of this. And then boom, my entire family, their addresses, my in-laws, my parents, how many kids I have, what schools they go to. Like he found everything. And so, yeah, I'm a lot more careful now about what I put online. Um, but you know, I think a lot of people don't realize that. Like I joked earlier about cyber stalking. I, I, you know, as much as I said, I didn't go that far down the rabbit hole, but it is, if you're not careful, it is really fucking easy to find you. Like, yeah, well, and it's, it goes beyond not being careful. You have to be actively hiding your own information or it will get out. Even if you never post it, it's there connected to your credit cards and to other things. And a lot of that information is unfortunately publicly searchable. But anyway, um, I am not on Facebook at all. Uh, I've got a profile there, but I have deleted the app from all of my devices. I hate Facebook and I never go there. So definitely don't try to contact me through Facebook. Uh, I am on Twitter as The Dan Wells. Um, I have a YouTube channel and you can look me up there. Uh, I do regular RPG reviews and I'll occasionally do other stuff. Um, I have a uh, show on Twitch that I do two different campaigns uh, that I'm the game master for. And we broadcast those on Twitch. One is every Tuesday night. It's called Typecast RPG. And then uh, the other one, the D&D &D one is every Tuesday night. And the Star Trek one is every other Wednesday. And those are both typecast RPG. And so you can find me there. Um, and then I have a website, thedanwells.com, which right now might be a little difficult because uh, we keep almost once or twice a week, we'll trip the too much traffic thing. So we're in the process of upgrading the service and, and taking that as an opportunity to revamp the website itself. So uh, the website, honestly, is probably the best. That's got a contact email that will go directly to my assistant. Um, and that's also the, the main way. So uh, if you want to do a RPG campaign with me, uh, that website is where you find my email address or my assistant's email address to uh, set that up. And so I'm very excited to play a game with you, but also oh. dear listeners, uh, I've still got a few slots left and I've got dozens and dozens, well over a hundred different role-playing games. So whether it is D&D that you're interested in or uh, Star Trek Adventures is my very favorite at the moment right now. Uh, I could rattle off 
you know, probably 10 role-playing games that I am obsessed with at the moment. Some of them very famous and some of them very obscure. Uh, I would love to run a campaign or a one-shot for you. No, that's, you're going to run us in a campaign and see me and Jen are like the old school nerds that colored in our D&D dice with that's the crayons. Nice. Like, we're, we're, you know, parry the fireball with the mage kind of D&Ders. Like we're not like only the wow version of D&D, which I don't even want to discuss because that just makes me <laughs> angry. <laughs> Those talent trees that killed us. So can, can I, can I brag for a minute? Of course, please. I, I did get permission to uh to talk about this because uh it, it was initially supposed to be a secret but uh i am now allowed to to talk about it so um through writing excuses which is the podcast that i do uh a few years ago we met chell lindgren who is an astronaut who's a big nerd he's involved himself in the hugo community and stuff like that and he met us and we became friends and he took it. He's taken us on two or three tours of NASA in Houston and things like that. And uh, so a few years ago, we were there uh, as part of this kind of outreach program with NASA. And we recorded writing excuses episodes with him and with a couple of other astronauts. And it was really awesome and talked about space and how to do, uh, you know, how to talk about space in fiction and how to do um, science education and all these different things. And then at the end of it, Chell said, I have a present for you. Uh, every astronaut is allowed to take, you know, a really small amount of weight comprising a personal item up to the space station. And he reached into his pocket and he pulls out a handful of these bright red D20s. And then uh, he said, so these have been to space. And then he wrote his initial on them and gave us each one of them. And so I've got a D20 that's been to outer space and it is my prized possession. How does it roll? It rolls very well. It doesn't float above the table, but it, uh, no. I like to imagine that it does. Do you fumble a lot with it? <laughs> uh, I honestly rarely ever use it because I'm like, this is the special one that I don't want to mess up. I've used it enough that actually the initial is worn off of it. <laughs> You know, That's it's awesome. It, oh, I can't, I can't actually wait to play with you. This is going to be so much fun. That's actually how I met Jen originally. Was we, um, she had a friend, a mutual friend of ours, invited her to a campaign, and then they didn't show up. So and I her, showed up at a place. Yeah, and her and her boyfriend <laughs> were like, literally, like, should we go? They're standing outside my apartment, going, or sorry, in a car, and they're going, should we just go in? Is this weird? Needless we, I don't say, even know this person. This is how people get murdered. Later, it's it's only mostly weird, and she doesn't regret a moment. <laughs> and if she knew about your obsession with serial killers beforehand, right. she would not have gone in. No, she wouldn't have. I I eased her into that. That was years later when we the writing thing came into play, and we weren't just Jen's the character, by the way, in every game that actually understands what's happening and tries to communicate it to the group. Nobody listens and she gets killed by some weird random bad guy because none of us are listening to a single thing she's saying. And I'm like, see, I told you the whole time. You're, but, you're uh, the Cassandra of the group. Yes. 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 Absolutely. Oh my God. You have been amazing, Dan. Thank you so much for being Thank on you. Podcast. You have also been amazing, both of you. This was so much fun. Awesome. Okay, guys. So this has been Drinking with Authors. I've been your host, Erica Lance. 